The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, so a couple really quick um, announcements. Um, on Monday, I mentioned a number of other classes that are offered in the spring if you're interested in game development here at MIT. Um, and I forgot this one. Uh, this is 11.127. It's also cross-listed as CMS.590. It's taught by Eric Klopfer and Scott Osterweil. Um, Scott should be in our class next Monday, I, I believe, to talk to us about um, learning games. But if, you're, if you end up being interested in games for learning, games for education, um, this is a great class to take, and it's offered in the spring. Um, we also have a class, CMS.615, Games for Social Change, it's being taught this fall. So if, you're interested, if, you're, if the topics of the games that we're working on for Project 4 are something that you just find yourself really interested in in the next couple of years, those are two classes you can take to, to explore that further. Uh, uh, all right, so, so I guess I, for me it's talking for an hour and then after that teamwork, right? Absolutely. Okay, so today what we're gonna do is talk a little bit about aesthetics, about uh, what we mean when we say we want your game to have a cohesive aesthetic. We do realize that the games that we're asking you to make are extremely time constrained, right? And we've been asking you not to go beyond, terribly much beyond the scope of what you've done before, but what we want to see in your game is a really, really cohesive aesthetic. Um, we used to tell students that we wanted them to put out polished games, but there was a really like unclear definition uh, when we used to do this about what a polished game would be. And we also realized that you know, for, some of, for some students, uh, for a lot of, of you, you've seen games that are really, really, really polished. Uh, when I say a polished game, can you tell me, can you come up with some examples of things that immediately come to mind? Limbo? Limbo? Yeah, that's the black and white side-scrolling platformer, really, really spooky, gorgeous uh, uh, visuals and sound design. What else? Yeah? All of the Final Fantasy games have really polished UI. Pretty much, yeah. Every single Final Fantasy game for its era is probably like the high watermark for production values, right? You know, uh, not just the UI, but, but you're, you're right in saying like the UI is alive. You know, whenever you even like switch to a different menu option, it does this little like, yeah, like animation. One of the only JRPGs that has like a really good UI design. I've looked at a bunch of them, and like Final Fantasy is way Which is amazing because they change it so much every um, every game. Unlike a lot of other franchises, they change the formula a lot. But also, of course, other things like the animation quality and the music and the voice act. Maybe not the voice acting, but you know, it's like <laughs> Meat Boy. Uh, Super Meat Boy. Yeah. Yep. So so. Yeah, it's 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 um for folks who haven't played this game, it's a really punishing game, but it makes it super easy for you to try again. In fact, there's no. That's like a single frame between you dying and you starting uh, the, the, the game again, and it goes, and goes right, right, right off. A game built by two people, by the way. Um, it's an indie game, and you can see it in, in, in documentaries like Indie Game, the movie, and you can see, you know, even though that they're working on their own, and they did spend a considerable amount of time on it, extremely visually polished, and, and musically amazing game as well. 
Monument Valley for the iOS. Uh, yeah, I can't remember it has to come out on Android yet, but it's definitely iOS right, 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 right now. But what, 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 what strikes you as Polish? Mm-hmm. And the game's kind of like a flat-shaded, isometric game. Um, you know, if you're f familiar with that 3D concept, you know, it means that things that are far away are the same size as things that are close to you. Isometric, uh, uh, orthogonal projection. Your camera's kind of looking at the world at a 45-degree angle up and, and sideways. Um, it's, but everything's flat-shaded, but it's got incredible art design. It's got art direction, I, I, I would say. The, the just... Um, how all of the characters, even though they basically all have one color, maybe black and white, um, move with a lot of expressiveness. You know, they're, they're sort of iconic characters, and you immediately sort of recognize what each character is supposed to be, even though the game is pretty ma much made out of geometric shapes. Um, I, I call out Hearthstone. Anyone playing that? Yeah. You know, it's like just every little bit of movement that the screen does as soon as your finger touches that screen is amazing. Um, even little like silly things like when you are looking for a match and you see like all the other people who you could have been matched against and then it, you know, of course it always selects the perfect match for you. It's, it's a ridiculous little UI thing but it sort of gets you in the mood and of course that's like music and stuff for what's really you know a card game, a collectible card game, right? Um, so uh, what I'd like to do right now is play through a game that I feel has a coherent aesthetic but maybe you wouldn't necessarily call it polished. But it gives you a little bit closer to what we're looking at because it might be a little bit more feasible for this class. So who hasn't played Sissy's Magical Ponycorn Adventure yet? Who would like to, actually? <laughs> all, all the hands went down. Come on down. Yeah, you. Yeah. Okay. Is that too loud? Is that okay? Yeah. Hi, my name's Sissy, and I think you love Ponycorn. It's the best thing in the world Thank you. 
You might have broken the game, but so, that's cool. Jar. Oh, jar, yeah, try, try, try. This is an empty jar. I got the green particles. Oh, yeah. I put it in the jar. Okay, all right, so I think everyone gets the idea of the game. Thank you so much. Yay, thank you. So let, let me actually switch to uh, my presentation. Uh, there we go. I'm going to talk a little bit about aesthetics. Um, now, you know, what about that game seemed, seemed off? Let's, let, 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 let's start with, what, what, what in that game seems out of place? The artwork seems out of place? Com out of place compared to the... It, it, it is a bit of a trick question. Um, I, I have been trouble. I have trouble figuring out what's out of, out of place. I think maybe the cursor hand actually, you know, looks like this like default kind of um, browser cursor hand is the one thing that 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 that, that I that I feel is not really cohesive with everything else. The artwork kind of um, sets the tone. It's pretty much the first thing that you see even before you start playing the game. You see the artwork in the uh, in, in 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 the website. Um, and then, of course, when the music comes on, you actually hear pretty much um, the girl's voice for the uh, for for most of the game. You don't get to you you get to about halfway through through the game before you hear the dad's voice playing, you know, the lemon and uh, orange boy, I guess. Um, did anyone notice the user interface? Okay. Mm -hmm. What were there any visual cues that you were working off to uh, figure out what to click on? It is it is a click everything in the game kind of kind of game. So so that makes sense. There is actually a slight little um, bit of drop shadow behind uh, everything that you can click, and some things that you can click but don't do it, don't do anything, like the goat on the stick, for instance. Uh, I thought I saw another hand over here about the user interface. Anyone? Yeah. Okay. The drop shadows. Yeah. Um, every yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. I forget, does the cactus do anything? 
Ah, so I think there is a big difference though. Yeah, uh, everything that's like crucial to advance in the game, I know this uh, uh, has a drop shadow. Um, but, but yeah, there, if you click everywhere in the world, if it looks like something that might stand out from the blank sheet of paper, it's, it should respond, right? So even though the cactus is not sort of a crucial piece of, of uh, the plot, such as it is, um, it is something that a player might reasonably expect to be able to click on and do something, and yeah, you get pricked by, by it. She says, ow, there's some voice, and, and, and there's a little bit of payoff on that. Every time he clicks, there's a little blue, blue crayon circle that sort of uh, emanates from where you're clicking. So there's another little like, typical UI feedback of like, all right, you clicked on this thing and we're acknowledging your mouse click, but we're going to do it in a way that sort of works with the rest of the art style. Um, I think something else that also stands out a little bit is like, um, let me see, if I go back to the game. Oh, I closed it, didn't I? Okay, all right. Does anyone remember if the, uh, the border between the game space and the inventory? Was that like a straight line or was that like kind of a raggedy thing? I think it's pure straight line, right? Yeah, so, so that's another like weird thing, you know, it's like this is, a, this is a game that's made out of like ripped sheets of paper and all of a sudden it's this like hard white line right across. What, what works in this game? Why would someone want to play this to the end? Which just takes about five minutes, it's not terribly long, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a father, uh, daughter, um, but the daughter led the project, basically determined how everything was going to work. The dad just did the coding and some voices, uh, of course scanning and things like that. But uh, the, very quickly you're introduced, like, things like the goat and the stick. Very, very quickly it just establishes that you're just playing in the five-year-old logic right now, right? And this whole world is going to work that way. Um, you know, the fact that it's narrated largely by, by, by this character who has an opening cutscene, actually, is just like, you know, I'm, I'm sissy and I freaking love pony cons. Um, and then explains what a pony con is, and then, and, 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 you know, you don't actually get to see one until pretty far into the game. Uh, but as soon as you're told, yes, that lump of green is a pony corn, you know, it's a pony with a unicorn horn at the end. It's like, okay, all right, that's a, that's a pony con, that's something I want. And you are, at that point of time, you already know you're supposed to put them in jars. So, <laughs> so that's, that, that, that starts to talk about something that we've already been exploring a lot in this class. It's kind of like the systemic aesthetic. The, how a person feels when they're playing through a set of rules. In Sissy's Magical Pony Con Adventure, it's the set of rules as devised by a five-year-old, but they're actually all internally consistent. Uh, when you play through the whole game, you start to figure out, yeah, you know, clicking everywhere is actually a perfectly reasonable strategy because nothing's really going to hurt you in this game. You, know, you, you, you may get scared, you may get pricked by a cactus, but nothing's really going to hurt you badly, so it's okay to click on everything. Um, and the kinds of decisions that you get to make are more like, you know, is now the right time to use the jar on a pony corn or do I need to do something first to get past the lemon or the other bad, uh, bad folks who get in your way. Um, and the kind of, of rules and the strategies that, 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 that you have to devise to be able to 
navigate through your space gives you a certain kind of systemic aesthetic. And you've been working with that since the beginning of the semester. Prototyping, you know, has some of you have made games that make you feel very tense. Some of these games, some, some, some of the games are more like zen-like. Some games are more, you know, strategic and you have to really think carefully about your next decision and some of them are kind of frantic. Um, and those have all come out from the rules that you devise first on your prototypes and then you move them over to your digital versions. And that's one form of aesthetic. But then there's also the other kind of aesthetic that we've been talking a little bit when we talked about polish, right? The art direction, the music, the render, you know, how, how a, a 3D object is rendered or even how a 2D graphic is represented. Is it drawn in crayon or is it you know, high quality line art? Or is it um, you know something running in the Crytek engine, and it's you've and you've got uh, you know, normal mapping and specular lighting, and things look like fire and glass and, and and concrete. You know, do the sound effects sound like they're coming from a place in the world? Do they sound like the thing they're supposed to sound like? Do they sound otherworldly or you know uh, little MIDI notes uh, in the sort of thing that you would expect from um, from a, a Nintendo game, for uh, from an old school Nintendo game. Um, and then there's the things that we would normally refer to as sort of the story of the game. You know, there's the plot of what happens to characters as they navigate through the world and who are these characters, who are they uh, really, and what sort of um, uh, emotional development they're going to go through. Uh, what's the theme of the game? You know, is it a game about, you know, uh, about isolate uh, 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 about being 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 isolated from everybody else. Is it a game about uh, U.S. military strength? Um, I think the theme of Call of Duty is actually America starts wars, England finishes them, um, which is kind of uh, weird if you look if you, if you look at history. And um, what's, and where is this game set? When is this game set? And what? Hopefully that's clear enough. And I think uh, one of the things that, 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 that can help is just a little bit of vocabulary so that when you're talking in your, te in your team about how, what's working in your aesthetic, it helps to be able to put words to it so that people can understand what part of the aesthetic that you're talking about. Are you talking about the things that have to do with your game system, right? Your rules and, 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 and the logic of your game and how, people are, how, that, how is that going to make someone feel while they're playing your game? Are you, are you talking about the style, the musical and the visual style of your game and how things move, you know, how things animate, um, and, and how things you, uh, 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 how about the things you hear? And, or are you talking more about the fictional elements, what's going on you know, in this sort of storyline? All these three things are going to work together to create the aesthetic of your game. And all these things need to work together for your final project. So, I want you to be thinking very, very hard about what's the fiction of the games that you're that, that you're creating. Is it is it being set in a you know real world actual city named an actual named city? Is it kind of like an abstraction of of of, of a city in a certain part of the world? Is it not a city at all? Maybe you're playing as the whole world. Maybe you're playing as a completely different planet. You know, and 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 you're trying to get through. Your, your, your learning that way? Um, is it about a family? Is it about an individual? Is it about an entire town council or something like, like that? Um, style is something that you uh, have to leverage 
in order to take advantage of whatever strengths you happen to have in your team. If you have really good artists and, or really good musicians, you can take advantage of, of that. But you don't want to do anything that's going to sort of show the assets that you don't have a lot of control over as being, as being poor. You want everything to be kind of like um, sort of a, a matching even standard. So for instance, if you, if you did a game that has mostly, oh, that, that has mostly pixelated 8-bit style graphics, and all of a sudden this like vector, ve vector art shape comes in, you better have a really good reason for that thing to be, or a photograph like shows up in your game or something like that. You better have a really good re reason why you're throwing in two very, dis very, very different uh, vi visual styles uh, in there. You can make it work, but you, you need to be able to think very, very hard about how you're going to make that work. Even things like what your cursor is going to be. And of course, how's that going to work with your system, right? If your game is about a dire situation, you know, floods are coming in or something like that, there's an epidemic, um, and you put everything in a kind of like nice, sunny, tropical, everyone's at a beach kind of a, a setting. Well, you can sort of do this like weird subversive thing, but then you have to be very, very conscious. Uh, it might be a little bit easier for you to just use a visual that actually supports the kind of gameplay that your game actually has. If, you want, if the game's about being, feeling tense, use visuals that also communicate this sense of feeling tense. Um, you know, there, there are games like, how many of you have played Tropical? A couple of hands out, 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 out there. Uh, how, how, how about SimCity? Who's played SimCity? Okay, a few more hands. So what's the difference between Tropical and SimCity from someone who's played Tropical? Yeah, go for it. The what? The, 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 there's a tropical sort of uh, equatorial setting uh, in, a, a, as opposed to SimCity, which is this like very, very urban, you know, probably temperate uh, 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 climate. In, in one game, you're the mayor. In another game, you're set up as a dictator. You know, and the kinds of things that you do in Tropical are, you know, supposedly very, uh, uh, things that are very similar to SimCity, like building and zoning and, 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 and constructing up your, your little island. But then at the same time, you also, you know, have to do, do sort of dictatorial, you know, quashing your resistance kind of thing, which you don't usually do in SimCity. Um, but it's set in this kind of like very idyllic, tropical, sunny environment. Uh, and they're usually, yeah, they're usually the, the developers of that game are usually trying to play that for laughs, right? You know, it's like, yeah, you're a dictator, but you're not really that evil compared to some of the real atrocities that you've seen in, 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 in tropical dictatorships in, in, in the real world. And so they're trying to use the visuals to get across that you're kind of this comic dictator. Um, you, I can certainly imagine a game that's a lot more about you know uh, real real uh, uh, dictators of small island nations, uh, and that will probably be a lot more. Uh, the, the visuals will probably not be quite so cheery, even though it might be sunny. It will probably be a little bit uh, show a little bit more of the grit of the you know of, of what it, what it's like to live in a very humid and very muggy and rainy place, right? 
and try to like, play that up so that the aesthetic works with how the gameplay actually is going to work. So, what is Oh, I, I should expand on that. So we, we talked a little bit about, uh, about, about how these things work um, on their own, fiction, system, and uh, style. But in between, there are sort of these like domains of game development which are going to draw from both of them, right? The way how, your, how a, a, a player interacts with the system and the visual feedback they're going to get from that in your user interface is going to also affect how they feel about your game. And it's going to affect that aesthetic. Um, the way how you know, a certain character has a theme song, for instance, you know, this, this one, one uh, character who's been lurking in the background, and you've always heard the theme kind of in the background, and then they show up in front, and then suddenly the, there's a full, full orchestration of, of their song. Things like that are how style and fiction work together, right? You know, this, 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 this is this particular character's theme, whether it's like Gollum or uh, uh, you know, the theme of one of the big cities in Lord of the Rings or something like that. And, um, and of course, the level design of, of your game it, it, it itself both has play and uh, bo both have game, gameplay implications and sort of fictional Im implications. When you have a post-apocalyptic racing game looks very, very different from, say, a Formula One modern-day racing game or a horse racing game. Uh, the, the, and that's going to not only change the way how the game looks, it's also going to change the way how the game plays. You know, it's that debris on the track. You know, it's, it's everything very dusty. Uh, it's everything, you know, like highly polished and very clinical, for instance. So, and of course, what your characters can do in an environment. You know, if, if you say someone's a ninja, then I expect this character has ninja-like abilities. You know, it says, oh, you're a ninja, and you um, kind of uh, punch people in the face in, you know, sort of, one-on-one -on -one fisticuffs. And it's like, that's not a ninja. They're thinking of something else there. Uh, maybe you shouldn't call that person a ninja. So we've looked a little bit at sissies. Uh, I want to show a couple of other games that I feel do really, really nail a cohesive aesthetic on a very low budget. Um, and uh, just for the sake of time, I think I'm just going to bring them up without asking people to come down and play. But um, how many people have played Thomas Wars Alone? Oh, about five people. Okay. Oh, there we go. Okay, it was just loading up. Cool. So this is a game that's mostly about rectangles. There we go. I'm glad I'm not making you play this because this is really giving me a crick on, in, in my neck. Okay, 
I'd like to show you a little bit more, but I find the, con the contrast on that screen is a little bit too low to actually see what the level is like. But it's pretty much all geometric objects. They're not all at right angles. Not, every, not everything in the game is, is, is a rectangle. And you saw some of the water was, you know, kind of, uh, kind of had some texture to it. But it's pretty much all flat-shaded polygons. Um, the majority of, of the game is all flat-shaded polygons. Um, what is, what, what, what in that very brief clip that you saw um, sort of uh, give, gives you a sense of what the developer of the game wanted you to feel about the game? What were some of the elements? What were some of the things that were working in that game? Yeah, you're very, very small in the screen uh, and compared to the rest of the screen. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, Thomas was alone, not Thomas yeah. is alone. Yeah. No, this, this is, you, are, you are making some very logical assumptions about this game, which are actually entirely true about this, this game. Eventually, you find other, other cubes, um, rectangles, actually. Um, all right, and so that's the way how the music works, to sort of set the tone of, yeah, it's kind of melancholy, but not completely depressing. Uh, you, you've got a bit of a beat. What else? I can't remember if you mentioned the, vo the voice acting, but what's, wh what's that doing to the game? Uh, for, first of all, who's speaking? Is it the cube? Some external, some, some external narrator, yeah. So, so that's this, uh, and, and what does that imply? What, what does that tell you about about what this game is trying to get you to feel. Just what, what comes to mind? Hmm? Say what? That it is a story. That it is, it is, this is actually more of a narrative-based game. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I think there is a little bit of the game that you're kind of being observed by, by this third party that's not actually part of the story, but is relating the story of this rectangle. So, so you're alone, but not exactly, right? You know, there is this third party there which is there to tell your story. And somehow this story is going to go places as, set, as suggested by the music, but also as suggested by some of the things that he says. That you know, he makes mental notes for for the future. That you know, uh, uh, even though the, the mental note is kind of a silly one, that implies there is a future, right? Uh, yeah. Makes you feel empathy for the character, even though he's just a rectangle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, let's let, let's talk about the rectangle. You know, um, what does the rectangle do when it jumps? Yeah, I guess those squash and stretch animation there, right? You know, it's like for something that's really just four right angles, it's actually remarkably expressive when it actually does a single jump. 
Uh, it gives you this sense that this thing is not an inanimate geometric object. This thing's alive. Um, it's all, you know, this is an organic square or rectangle. Okay, so 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 we've gone through a couple of ways how this game achieves its sort of aesthetic quality. Let, let, let me see what my next slide was going to be. All right. Oops. Ah, damn it. There we go. I'm hitting the space bar when, uh, whenever you see it, like a big circle radiate, that's me hitting the space bar. Even say, oh geez, okay, <laughs> okay. So I'm going to quit that game. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what's first impressions? So there's like some sort of vertical hole jittering going on. And actually, it's kind of a, doesn't look like it's a flat screen, right? It looks kind of a. Yeah, a little tube, tube shape to it. Yep, that's a good one. What else? That's developed by one guy, by the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. So, so the fact that you can hear your own breath 
sort of gives you an impression of the space around you, which is simultaneously really, really small and really, really large at the same time. You know, you're in this tiny little thing, but there's this huge world outside of there. What else? Is there any music? So let's, let, let, let's say, OK, air is important. And, and there's a lot of things that remind you of that, right? You have, you have the breathing sounds. You have the things in the world that are sort of poking that, 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 that you can pick up. Uh, there's a little oxygen meter. If, I'm not so sure if, if, if all of you saw that. There's a little oxygen meter that's constantly running down. And, what, and the sound of, that breathe, that of, your, of your breathing changes depending on how much oxygen you've got or if you pick up an air pocket and then you can breathe. Um, what else? Okay, so you said spaceship. What and uh, so a few people said spaceship. What what gives you what what else gives you the impression this might be a spaceship? Because the game never tells you that it, that you're in a spaceship. Hmm. It could be underwater. So so what's the evidence for each? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a sonar ping, yeah, which is something that you expect to do underwater. But what, what are the things that remind you of space in this game? I, I would argue that, oh, yeah, yeah. Some of the objects on the screen They look like constellations, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of inertia in, in, in changing your direction. Yeah. Um, apparently, there is an answer on whether it's space or underwater. I don't actually know the answer to that one. Uh, but, but they're both plausible um, conclusions from actually nothing that the game explicitly tells you. All of that you derive from hints, from the aesthetic. But because the game kind of works together really, really well on the game mechanics of running out of air and the visual representation of having this old school monitor, as well as you know the the, the sound of you breathing and, um, and and everything that you kind of like know about about what it's like to be in a situation where air is important, which implies. You're certainly not walking around on the ground somewhere, right? You know, or if you are, you might be on a different planet or something. Um, and what you know about inertia uh, can gives you this impression, this very, very deep kind of world that you can sort of like make theories about and imagine where you might be without the game actually having to tell you any of that. So, so that's a game where I feel is really, really successful in getting that across. Um, this next one, I'm just going to play a demo. Uh, this is DEFCON. It's kind of like a real-time strategy game, uh, only on a sort of like global thermonuclear war kind of scale. Oops. Uh, screen, here we go. 
Is this 1280 by 800? I think my screen resolution changed on me. Yeah, when I uh, when I tried to fix that problem earlier, the screen resolution changed on on, on, on me. Uh, that doesn't matter. I'll I'll uh, switch it to something else. We'll say this is fine. So, so I'm just going to play a demo. This is just a game that you see, uh, that th this, is, this is as if the game is just playing against itself, AI versus AI. If anyone have seen, how many of you have seen War Games? Okay, wow, okay, that's, this is, is Matthew Broderick, is that right? Uh, and uh, this is very much inspired by that. And um, the idea, of course, oh, actually I'm not gonna tell you that uh, uh, beyond what I ju just said. I want you to start calling out things that sort of, think work aesthetically about this game. I'm going to move the camera around too. This is a an actual game that you're watching right now being played uh, with the AI playing against itself. You just call out stuff that strikes you about this game? It's stark, if, if nothing else. It, 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 there's a certain amount of brutishness about it, but also very technological. It's not just like, you know, uh, hewn out of rock. It's not that kind of brutishness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not necessarily 20, you know, not, not necessarily even the year two, 2000, right? You know, this, this seems like a much older aesthetic. Something from the 80s, maybe, Cold War. Scroll over to something a little bit closer. No one's in America. <laughs> this is a continental war. What else? Which song is this? Anyone re re recognize the music? Thunder? Where, where do you think this little klaxon, really soft? Where are you? When, who, where are you supposed to be while you're playing this game? In a war room? Underground? Several miles underground, maybe? It's a disturbing game. Um, the music, uh, I believe they're all like, it's all like classical music, but it's heavily filtered through a lot of sort of audio filters. Uh, 
you know, giving it a sort of a, a, a reverb effect. In a, way, in a sort of sense that you might be hearing this inside, you know, a small enclosed space. You know, that, that there is a little uh, cassette player inside your bunker somewhere. What about, so besides the font, what about the UI? What, what, what about the UI seems to be, you know, the way how the units are represented? Like those ships, are those ships life-size? <laughs> they're not, right? You know, they're not, they're not the size of several cities put together. These, these, are, these are sort of abstract representations. These are sort of army pieces that you're moving on a board, only it's a digital board, that represent armies that are out there in the water or flying through the air, you know, um, squadrons that are flying through the air somehow. So, I'm going to quit now. Um, so, so DEF CON is, um, again, a very small team. I think less than five people. Uh, at least when they were less than five people when they made DEF CON. Now they're making other games. Um, it was one of the first successful games by Introversion, which is the name of an indie developer that did this. And yeah, they, they, they explicitly stated that this is very much inspired by War Games, the movie, uh, where it's about global thermal nukes at war. It, it, it's, it's about, um, specifically it's a movie that, that was done in the 80s, so it's very much about uh, what, what, what global thermal nuclear war would have made, uh, made, made sense in the 80s. Obviously, I mean, the graphic representation of what you see in that game is a little bit higher end than what you would normally have had in the 80s, but they're trying to sort of not necessarily represent things realistically, but sort of how things as Hollywood might have seen it. Um, and uh, even the marketing of the game says, um, I believe it's, it's, every, it's everybody dies, or something like that. Or, um, and and, it's re and you, you can't really win that game, right? You know, this is this is what this is this is what the, the 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 packaging of this game looks like. I think if you go to Steam, this is what it looks like now. Up, Uplink is another game by them. It's worth checking out. It was a game. It's, it's a game about hacking, uh, and if you look at that, you will see all the same sort of '80s influences. But it's not about launching missiles at each other. It's about breaking into bank accounts and uh, changing your school grades and things like that. Um, finally, this is a game I actually do want people to play. So, who hasn't played? Ah, all right. I, I, I want to volunteer. Come down and play this game. No, someone else. This is from Boston, by the way. Go for it. What can you use? I don't know. Play your Oh, hit, 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 hit unlock. Oh. Oh. Okay. Fine. <laughs> just try, try, try. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that one? Try it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that one can it play. Okay. 
So the basic idea of this game is it's a base jumping simulator. So you use WASD to like jump off the side of a building and then just fall. Try not to hit anything. <laughs> but try to get as close to things as possible. <laughs> because that's, that, that's how you get points. Oh, something happened to the sound. No. Ouch. Is this an endless mode? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, this this seems seems like it is. No. Try hitting spacebar. Oh wait, no, 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 not yet. Wait, oh no. Let's go. Let's go. It's fine. All right. Now try to land in that little circle. Yeah. Little red circle behind that building. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to turn, turn the volume down. Uh, what, what's working for this game's aesthetic? Did I see your hand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, this is a game that uses sort of WASD first-person controls. Only you're not, you know, first of all, you're not carrying a gun and looking around like that. You're pretty much doing this for the entire game. So, so you're always kind of like rotating around your center. What, so that's a systemic uh, uh, decision of how the controls work. The yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's like you know, survive to this point, get 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 to the next checkpoint, and uh, and things are actually flying past you at a pretty high rate as well. What else? Music, art, storyline. Mm-hmm. I think the music doesn't start the moment your your foot leaves the first building. I think it, uh, there, there is a le there are some levels where it does that, where the music only starts the moment you jump off the building. It's like you can stay on top of the building as long as you want, but nothing happens, and then as soon as you jump off, the music starts. It's sort of like get so it's like all right, now you're doing something that you should feel exciting, so we're gonna play, uh, excited about, so we're gonna play this exciting music at you. Um, Yeah, there's a there's this very strong sort of rushing sound, and uh, you're getting other UI sounds as well. Uh, those are the things that are actually giving you, those are the things that are actually giving you points, uh, getting close to other buildings, and so there's there's some visual feedback. Yeah, the the, uh, the the thing is, I played a bit of this game, so it's 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 not um, 
it's, it, it normally like directs you to the first thing that you can click really clearly. And then at some point of time, it stops saying um, now. It stops. It stops leading you to a linear path. So you've got this whole grid of different things that you can do. Just choose one. So I, I, admittedly, the game UI, the game UI may not achieve what it's trying to do. But what do you think it's trying to do? Even if it fails at it. So like here's this like ridiculous grid of all of these different things that you can do. But maybe some of them are unlocked, or some, some of them are still locked, and some things are still locked out. Like what's, what's, what's the point of showing you all these things that you can't do? Right. This whole idea is that what, it, it's, it's the same idea of, you know, in Zelda, sometimes you see this heart in a location which you know that you can't actually get to yet. You know, but the whole point of that is, is to make you want to get there. Um, and that's what the, the unlock system in this game, I believe, is trying to do. It's one, it, wants you to, it wants to give you an, an incentive to keep playing because there's all this other content that you haven't seen yet, but you kind of have a clue that it's out there. At the beginning of the game, there's a little narration, actually, that you may not have caught. It says, like, the city of Boston has outlawed base jumping. Um, you know, so there's a whole idea that what you're doing isn't actually sanctioned by the authorities. And eventually, that you you get these commands later where you can like flip off people while you fly, while you jump off, um, uh, uh, unless they happen to be your fans, and then you give them a thumbs up, and then yeah. So you know, there's a sense that what you're doing isn't advisable. You know, the, 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 um, this is not supposed to be just how the future looks like. This is like even in this like weird future where you have these mega skyscrapers that go all the way into space. Uh, this is still not a good idea, but you're going to do it anyway. Right? That's what this game's about. So, um, you know, it's, it's a 3D game. This, this one was done in Unity, actually, although it was a port from a game that wasn't originally developed in Unity. So you can think of the very first version, which is just called Ah, um, A Reckless Disregard for Gravity. Is that right? Yeah. That, 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 that game only runs on Windows, and then all the versions that have come since then all run on multiple platforms because they were developed on Unity. Including Oculus Rift. Including Oculus Rift, the Oculus Rift version of that game. Um, you can imagine how that will work. Anyway, um, so something that I want to end on today, and just a second presentation very quickly. Actually, you know what? I've been talking for an hour. Let's, let's do a quick break. Yeah, yeah and uh, we'll come back in 2.15? Ten minutes. Yep. All right. Uh, oh, let me see. Am I on mute? Okay. So, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to have your groups actually have a discussion about what you want your game mechanics to do. And the reason for this is because I feel that a lot of you probably are decently equipped to talk about what you want your storylines and your characters or your art style or your sound de design to achieve in your game. And the reason for that is. We've seen a lot of movies. We know how, you know how we react to music. We realize what visuals have on sort of human emotion. But I'm not sure if you've had this discussion yet in your team about what you want your mechanics to do aesthetically. What kind of like um, experience do you want to generate for the player? So really, it's what what you want everything in your game to do. But right now, I'm asking you to do a discussion about what you specifically want your games to do. Um, I'm going to throw some words at you to help you be able to frame these ideas inside your team. 
You know, the first is that, you know, is this a game? How many of you feel like you're making a game that's kind of about strategically outwitting the, the, the game system? Like being smarter than the computer, basically, or being smarter than the game designer. That's, that's how you win the game. No. How many of you uh, feel that your game is really about some random thing happens and now you have to deal with it? Okay, let's see a couple, a few hands out there, maybe. And some of you don't know where your game falls in that, you know, uh, in spe that spectrum. Of course, it could be a, a, a bit of bo both, right? Um, a French writer named Roger Kalawa came up with a categorization of what these different kinds of gameplay uh, could be termed. And he came up with, uh, with Argon and Alia. Alia, some of you, if you've ever studied Latin or Roman history or anything, might recognize it from Alia Yacta Est, which is, you know, the die is cast. So the word comes from dice, uh, and it sort of represents games of chance. As Argon is a little bit more about conflict, it's about you know, usually, you know, person versus person conflict, but in case of games, it's just kind of like competitive um, uh, contests of skill. Basically, how, how well can you deal with this uh, challenge that's put in front of you? Um, Kalawa goes on and describes this as this is sort of ludus. This is the ludic kind of play where you're sort of playing, uh, they're very specific to what games are all about. You can, there are other forms of play out there in the world that don't have any, that don't necessarily have anything to do with games. So don't need, a game isn't required to have one of these things. But for the most part, uh, what Kalawa claims is that this is, this is the thing, th these kinds of actions are the things that really, really sort of set games apart from other kinds of play. There's Argon and, and, and Aliyah. But then there's, what else is there in play? There's Paedia and Illings, which, uh, which again, words that I don't necessarily expect you to remember, but here are words that might be a little bit easier to, to recollect. The sense of um, being someone that you are not. Mi mimicking something that, 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 that you might fantasize being or that you're being asked to perform. You know, are you a person on run of, from the zombies? Are you a military soldier? Are you, you know, a, a, a detective? Are you, a, you know, an assassin, a scoundrel, that sort of thing? You know, you're being asked to play that part. Are you a town, a town hall mayor? Um, whereas Vertigo, it's about the sort of like the physical sensation of playing the game. And when it comes to digital games, usually that's where, that, that's one of the things that digital games have like the biggest problem, unless you're doing something like, you know, Dance Dance Revolution, where you're actually having to play the game as a full body or a connect thing. But even games like, ah, you know, we were describing a game that's very much trying to give you this sense of physical motion. Right, so they're trying to sort of conjure up this uh, this this sort of uh, bodily freedom, you know, even if that freedom may necessarily mean a loss of control, uh, to to sort of give you a pleasurable uh, experience, and you get that in other kinds of uh, play. How many of you play that game where you go around a baseball bat with your head down, and then you have to walk? No one does this. That's my favorite game. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you get yourself as dizzy as you can. Sometimes you look up and you spin, sometimes you look down and you spin. And then you try to make, it, make your way across to, to, to the other side of the finishing line. And you know, that's, 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 that's like literal vertigo, right? So, 
So we've got like these different kinds of sensations that 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 this one theorist has already de described. They're probably not everything that games that can can possibly do, uh, but they're kind of in one way of describing it kinds of fun. You know, there is the sort of competitive skill uh, test of skill. There is the um, you know does does fortune favor you? Today, you know, are you feeling lucky right now? Do you want to press your luck? Um, do, you, do you get to be somebody else uh, that, that, um, and, and live through the experience? Or do you just get to be in a sort of physical situation that you, that, that, that you haven't been? These are all different things that your game mechanics can achieve. What I'd like to describe is like the stuff on the right is like the stuff that sort of puts you into the moment. This is the this is how like spontaneously, uh, where, where, where you're being asked to spontaneously react. You know, can you think like a like a mayor of a city or a president or a monarch? You know, can you you know react in a way as as if buildings were flying towards you in two hundred you know two hundred miles per hour? Um, whereas everything on the on, on the right is what we typically described as the structure of the games. We, you've been experimenting with this in your prototypes since day one. But there's also kind of like the differences be between the decisions that you get to make and the things that kind of just happen to you and you get to react. So you know, I, I like to describe the stuff at the bottom as kind of fate, right? This is the fate that, 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 that you have. Buildings are going to fly into your face. And you know, and you kind of you know need to be able to then make decisions to be able to just deal with that reality, or fate being you know well the dice is going to show what 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 it does, but the test of skill is the part where you get to decide what you're going to do given that you know the odds and that you know uh, uh, what uh, and you know what kind of actions that you can take. So. Right now, in your teams, what I'd like you to do is actually um, have a discussion about, given your prototypes that you've, that, that you've developed so far, I don't think, we're not doing a test today, we're doing tests on Monday, right? So what do you want your prototype on Monday to try to achieve? It could be any combination of this, it could be all of it, um, but I would like you to have that discussion in your team, just maybe 15 minutes? Yeah, that's, that's, that's plenty of time. Um, and, then, and then what we're going to do is just do a very quick report back about where you think your team, you know, just one person from, from each team will come down and tell us what are the things that you think you want your game mechanics to achieve in your prototype on Monday. Okay? 15 minutes, that, gets, that will get us to basically two, uh, about 240. All right. So go right ahead. I'll just leave that up. Uh, so our game as it is right now, you're basically playing like a child or an animal, we haven't decided. Um, and you're basically going to go around town like figuring out this uh, mystery. So you're kind of playing like a, like a detective type story. Um, 
So based on the, on the slide, ours is more like structure and decision. Um, so it's going to be sort of competition against the computer um, where you're trying to figure out this like mystery of what's causing cholera, or what's causing people to be sick, actually. You won't know that it's cholera. Um, so yeah, that's basically where our game stands. OK. All right, cool. Thank you. Very analytical detective game that, that, that you're working towards. And that's what the prototype and test uh, uh, on Monday. Who's next? Come on up. Hi, we're Snap. So we're planning on making a very competition-heavy game because you're going to be playing with a bunch of other people. Um, so for Monday, we want to have that competition structure in place so that we can see how it works. Uh, we're also adding a little bit more fiction to Snap, which is very abstract. Um, and so we're going to later on test how that works out. But for now, it's just really going to be the basic competition of the game that you played. OK. All right. Thank you. So for Heat Wave, we're mainly going to focus on originally decision, deciding who you're going to help and how long you're going to try and convince them to drink some water or go inside. And there's also going to be a small aspect of fate because you can spend 10 turns trying to convince a person to go inside. And at the end of the 10 turns, they say, no, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm not going inside. So decision and fate. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Our team is working on forecast-based financing. So because we're about planning for disasters, our game is pretty heavy on chance. But what we want to teach the players to do is to use planning and forecasting in order to reduce the effects of that chance and sort of gain valuable skills in, in uh, mitigating that. Right. That's very much on the right, on the right side of this screen. Yeah. OK. Hi, so we're the other cholera group, and we decided to uh, create a simulation-based game where there are many villages, and they have their own sort of water source. And we have cholera as sort of like a, some sort of like entity that can sort of spread from village to water to other villages. And pretty much every village has their own population. Uh, they have their own infection rate. And of what you are, you are pretty much a some sort of person who really like has a lot of power and wants to fix this cholera outbreak. So this game focuses a lot on decision making because you have many different um, ways to try to fix this problem, either the short term uh, using like simple purification systems to launch their like, waste management. But this game will also have a lot of chance because obviously these things aren't 100% you know, like efficient. There's going to be some failure rates, there's going to be some breakdowns. What we want to focus on right now is to make sure that we can get our villages to have their own sort of like parameters, make sure that the cholera, like we have some way of um, representing cholera and how they spread to like all the other villages. Cool, thank you. Was that all the teams? Or was there one more? <coughs> That's pretty much it. Okay, okay just, just, just a quick thing. So a, a couple of thoughts. Um, 
One thing that, 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 that uh, you should be trying to figure out uh, as you work on your prototypes is uh, to what extent is the decision making which came up with a lot of the different groups going to be reacting to things that you hadn't anticipated versus crafting a long-term plan, right? Um, the stuff that you, that you deal with on the short term is going to go very heavy on this side and it's going to play a very big part in making someone feel like the kind of person that you want to feel, whether you're a big decision maker or an individual on the ground. Um, the long-term plan part of it is really more gamey. You're really thinking more as of someone who's playing the game rather than someone who's actually living the game. Uh, and uh, you can also decide that's more, that's more what you want people to be going for, especially games that have to deal a lot with planning for chance. Now, just because you have random numbers in your game and you know, probability rates and everything doesn't necessarily mean that, you have, uh, that your game is all about chance, even though you have the, 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 these things in, in your system. Because if, if what chance in your game really means is that there is a certain rate at which certain things are going to happen, then really that's just a rate. That's something that you can plan for. You can just expect you know, every 10 turns, you know, you're going to get three outbreaks. You know, that's, that's, that's how the numbers going to break down, even though you don't know exactly when those outbreaks are going to be. Um, and if your, if your game is where every single one of those times where chance hits is really catastrophic or really, really beneficial, then you've got to game more of a game of chance. It is the sort of thing like a certain number of these things are going to happen at, at a given rate and you just have to plan for that rate. That is really not really chance at, anymore. It's more about that that skill-based uh, 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 test of whether you can plan well. So, um, so again, always keep in mind, what do you want your game to feel like while you are trying to figure out you know, whether your, your simulation is right, whether your facts are right, whether this is actually what happens with the diseases or the, uh, or the catastrophes that you're dealing with. Also keep in mind, this is wh what you want your game to feel like. And make sure that's also informing how you're designing your game mechanics and your art style and your storyline and your characters and so forth. That's what I got to say. Um, so administratively for Monday, um, we have a lecture in the morning um, about games for learning. Um, then we're going to do playtests. And then at the end of playtests, we're going to do those two-minute presentations. So that when you're playtesting, even though we heard a little bit about what your games are, we're not completely, like, we're still, we'll still be a little naive when you're playing your games. We'll know exactly what's going on within the games. Um, in that two-minute presentation, we, we want to know a lot about process. So let us know how you got to the point where you are now and where you think you're going. Um, I believe product backlogs are due at that, at that point too, so, you, so use your product backlog as part of your telling us what you're planning on doing on your projects. Um, I know a few of you have come to me and asked me about certain aspects of your projects that might not be answered by the resource materials that we've given you. So hopefully you've, you've read through the, the resources and you're finding some of your answers there. If there's any answers, any questions you have that are not being answered by your research, um, email that to videogame-bosses, and we'll forward that along to the clients. Um, I'm working to get them to have to, I'm working to get them to allow me to just give you their email address so you can contact them directly. I'm still figuring out who exactly for each of those projects that's going to be, but that should be um, solidified by Monday. Um, but yeah, but things to work to look out for that might not be answered in your re in your resources are cultural sensitivity, um, particularly to um, because of who your target audience might be. So if you're doing anything, if you're doing anything graphical, if you're doing anything representational, really think hard about who it is is playing the game, what kind of cultural background they have, 
um, and how are you representing it to them? Um, are you doing it both authentically and also um, not patronizing um, them? It's, it's going to be a really hard challenge for you. We don't expect you to actually solve it this semester. We, we expect you to have some, to come up with some ways to figure out how you, you might solve it in the future. And that's kind of what we want to hear about in some of these presentations or, or how are you solving these, those kind of problems. Any questions before we let you go and let you work in your teams? So. Can you give us an idea of how much time we'll have in class to work with our teams so we can better plan? Hour and a half. Um, <laughs> today's a little, we, we went a little bit long today, about 20 minutes That's long. That's all my fault, I'm sorry about that. Blame him, um, but, but hour and a half, basically. Um, any, if there's a guest lecture, those are, tend to be an hour long, and then that would be two hours long. If it's not a guest lecture, we tend to ramble, so hour and a half. Um, <laughs> Also, part of that is because we start class at 1.10, that, that kills some of the time. So if you want to come into class at 1 and be in your teams and work on your teams, and then we yell at you to, to shut up, that's fine. That's actually good. You're using your time well. Any other questions? All right, so I'm putting this up, uh, these materials up here. And also a reminder, the play test, if we weren't really specific about it, um, we are expecting low-fidelity prototypes, but it could be digital or paper. It's really whatever whatever's useful for you, that's what we want to see tested.